Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mito, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going, Rachel? Not too bad. We have some really unfortunate news to kind of talk through today. Yeah, we uh, took the last two weeks off, and during those weeks, um, we had some tragic news in the world of AAC. Yeah, so unfortunately, Jane Odom um, has passed away um, unexpectedly. I think it was kind of a shock to the whole community. Um, she just kind of passed away in her sleep, and um, it's it's so, so sad. Um, she has been such an inspiration and such a force in the AAC world and um, just has such a vibrant energy and did so much you know, great, so many great things for our field. Um, and just was such a great person, you know, all in all. Um, so we're really sad to kind of hear the news. And I was shocked. I like, you had texted me, Chris, and I like could not believe it. I saw it on Facebook. Um, my good friend, Matthew press had, uh, posted it and I was like, wait, what? And, uh, then did some research and found out sure enough that Jane had passed away. And, uh, immediately, I, my mind went into reflection mode, like how the times that I have spent with Jane over the last, I mean, she's been such um, a great friend and colleague and someone I've presented with. And uh, I'm just so going to miss her energy and her light. Um, did you know her in person, Rachel? Yeah, so her and I had met, and actually, she's been on the podcast. So like, that's how I first met her. Um, and she's been on the podcast twice. The first time was with me, and then the second time was with you, I think, Chris. Mm -hmm. um, and she actually went to Temple. So I feel like we were always really connected on uh, Temple. And then, of course, the Eagles, whenever it was football season. Um, her and I were friends on Facebook, and... Um, yeah, I would just always like comment whenever she would like show her Philly, her Philly pride, because um, I think most of you guys know I'm from Philadelphia or from Pennsylvania. Um, I went to school in Philly and went to school at Temple for my both my undergrad and my master's for speech, um, and that's where she went to. So we had a lot to to talk about and connect with um, on the Philly front. Um, so where did you? So you knew her from Temple, but no, you just both went to Temple. How did you first meet her? I met her through the podcast. I the the interview I kind of tagged along with uh, Lucas uh, when Lucas uh, was still on the podcast, and um, that was initially how I met her. Um, the way I first met her was at the Assistive Technology Industry Association conference. Um, Beth. Poss and I had presented there for many, many, many years. And so Beth and I were sitting having dinner and um, again, many years ago, and Jane came by. It's like, oh, hi, Beth. And Beth was like, Chris, do you know Jane? Jane, do you know Chris? And we're like, actually, we've never met. You know, we've knew each other's names, but we haven't met. So then we sat and had dinner together. And then we have been friends ever since. Um, in fact, even presenting together at ATIA. And, uh, and we went to FETC and presented together. Um, and in fact, that's where uh, some of our podcast recordings have been is we were doing stuff on robots together and working with Apple to uh, make sure their voice recognition uh, application, their accessibility feature of voice recognition and voice control worked with AAC. And sure enough, it did. And of course, we got together at FETC and we're talking about it. But the whole time we were on the buses talking about, uh, you know, transporting back and forth, talking about the world of AAC in general. Um, she introduced me to so many AAC users and, and then just we had a great time hanging out at, um, at the different conferences together. So, oof, uh, 
hearing of her passing was really, it's, it's really sad and tragic. People might not also know that she was sort of the driving force and inspiration behind the AAC Language Lab, the PRC product, the AAC Language Lab. Um, that was sort of Jane's... Um, work, you know? Uh, I'm sure there was other, other people that influenced it and added to it, but Jane was the driving force behind that endeavor. So if you've ever enjoyed anything from the AEC Language Lab, it's because of Jane Odom. Yeah, and I she would frequently do uh, Facebook Lives all about like therapy ideas, and I don't know if that started during the pandemic or what, but um, I just remember like hopping on sometimes to Facebook, and it would be like Jane Odom is live, um, and you know she had such great therapy ideas, and I, what I loved about her is that she was so practical. I feel like she was just like keep it fun, keep it engaging. Here's some ideas, um, and she kind of simplified it, which I think is really helpful in AAC because it's so over overwhelming and daunting when you kind of get caught up in the technical details. Um, and I feel like that was one thing that she was really good at was just kind of really simplifying it and saying like, let's just keep this fun. Like what's fun? Like farting is funny, you know, and just like really like love that about her. Yeah. And I think she for I mean, there was a there's been a whole crew for years that have been um, shouting from the rooftops about literacy, literacy, literacy. And Jane was certainly one of those people. And again, with her work with the AAC Language Lab is uh, it's evidenced in that work, you know. So, again, this is not a commercial for the AAC Language Lab, but and they, they have definitely have free stuff over there that you can go and enjoy and get a feel for. But if you did not know Jane, uh, that would be a way to go learn about who Jane was because that work there is is uh, illustrative of her uh, her beliefs and the kind of person that she was. This community the talking tech community and then the larger AEC community is pretty tight. You know, I mean, there's, um, uh, there's a lot of people that know each other. I guess it's, I guess that's many, many professions, but I just, um, don't know of, of professions that are quite as tight as this one where everyone does sort of kind of know each other's names or referenced each other in some regard or, um, and Jane was, of course, was a champion for that connecting people together. Uh, and, uh, I, 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 at, the, at the risk of making an awkward transition here, I did get to go to ISTE, uh, where I got to connect with other people. Um, Jane, the reason I bring that up now is, is Jane was also a driving force saying AAC companies, not just PRC that she worked for, but companies in general need to be at these big ed tech conferences um, to, to start to bridge the gap between the worlds of special education and general education. I mean, that was some of the conversations I had with her when we were at the at FETC is the Future Educational Technology Conference or Future Educators for technology conference and she was like we need to be here we need to be sharing these concepts and um being a force for inclusion because it's not going to happen generically it's going to happen with consistent effort and so that's that's why we were there you know working with the companies that were uh that, that have been bracing accessibility thinking about aac in a broader sense not just this niche thing that a few people do but kind of understanding that um that the way forward is together, not apart. And we have to come to these conferences. So uh, I, I've taken her message and I, and 
I've definitely taken it to heart. I mean, I've always believed it, but I've also think it could be a calling for all of us to continue Jane's work is to help come to these general ed conferences and blow the trumpet for AAC and inclusion. I also think that you know, there's, I mean, I absolutely agree with you, Chris. I feel like it's really important for us to kind of put AAC on the map in a lot of ways, especially at these kind of big conventions where, you know, everyone kind of is coming together for uh, education and technology because um, AAC is a part of that. Um, I also think that, you know, it's uh, really important to kind of spread that message, even just kind of at an individual level. Like I have, you know, some AAC apps on my phone. And when I meet people, I was just yesterday, I was at a barbecue and everyone's like, what do you do? I'm like, well, like it's kind of complicated like how much time do you have and I start talking about AAC and they like really don't understand in a lot of ways if it's someone who's not you know connected to you know individuals with disabilities um and so I just like pull it out and I'm like here's what it looks like um and so anyway I feel like we can all kind of do our part and sometimes we forget um you know that people don't know about what AAC is and the impact it can have and I feel like you know it's part of our responsibility as educators and clinicians to share that and to make people aware of it um what's cool is that like you know we see movies and television shows now and like we're seeing individuals with disabilities um, we're seeing AAC more, which is really exciting. Um, but I feel like we can all kind of take that, um, you know, and really run with it as far as increasing awareness, because that's how we're going to change, you know, the way things are done and the access that our students have to AAC. Uh, speaking of ISTE, really quickly, I just want to shout out two, well, one's an organization and one or a company, I guess, and the other is a person. So at ISTE, um, the only company that was sort of special ed focused that I saw that might be in the realm of AAC was Toby Dynavox was there at this. So ISTE is the International Society for Technology and Education. I just want to shout out to Toby Dynavox, who was there representing um, at this conference. Uh, I think maybe be promoting the use of uh, symbols for a larger audience, but these are the sorts of conversations that need to be happening. Happening, And then a second shout out to Lisa Helen. Uh, Lisa, hi, hi. Uh, Lisa is a longtime Patreon supporter and listener to the podcast. And I was like, Hey, I know you. And she was like, I know you, you know, um, and we had a bunch of conversations. She came to the inclusive learning playground where we chatted for a while. So it was just great to see, again, this work happening of bridging the gap between educators that might not be thinking of special education, certainly educators that are, might not be thinking about AAC and bringing it to uh conferences or other experiences into the general ed realm, making it part of their consciousness, you know? Yeah. You sent me a picture with Lisa. And so I'm saying, hi, Lisa. I'm so happy to have, uh, yeah, to have you as a Patreon member. And we just think are so thankful for your support. Uh, we also, Chris, have, we have two other Patreon members. Can I shout them out? They're new. Of course. We also want to welcome Jenna and Margaret to our Patreon. Um, Patreon is a place where you can help support this podcast um, if you really love it and you want even more content on AAC um, and you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech. I think we, something else that happened is someone um, upped their 
their Patreon. So someone went from $8 to $10, said, oh, you know what, I can afford another $2 a month. And they upped, because we, we suggest $8, but it could be anything. It could be four, it could be two, it could be 10, it could be 12. Uh, it's whatever you decide what you want to. We just suggest $8. So, um, so thanks, thank you, Liz, I think, for doing that. And uh, we appreciate that. <laughs> So, Rachel, tell us about our interview today. In fact, I have a sneak peek. I saw who it, part of it. I know, I know at least one of the people in this interview, and I'm a little jealous that I didn't get to be in the interview. Uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Vicki Haddox and Janine Pekka. Vicki is a clinical associate professor at the University of Memphis, um, and she teaches graduate level coursework on AAC, which I feel like not every university even has AAC, uh, an AAC course. Um, and so I actually saw Vicki and met her at ATIA last year and um, was able to uh, attend her session that was all about coaching um, and mentorship. Um, so she came on and talked all about what she she does with her students um, and then you know we're gonna have so this is part one and then next week we're gonna air part two uh, so Janine is a student um, an autistic student actually of Vicky's um, who talks all about uh, what it's like uh, to be autistic and to be in graduate school for speech-language pathology um, and so I'm super excited for this episode um, so this is part one with Vicki Haddix and Janine Pekka My name is Lance McLemore, and I am a team member with Impact Voices. AAC users make up a very small percentage of the population. We are scattered, isolated, and rarely or never get to meet anyone like us. This makes it difficult to impossible to have a community. Impact Voices helps to fill in that gap. Impact Voices is a non-profit organization who supports, empowers, and connects AAC users worldwide. Impact Voices connects AAC users together to empower them to make an impact in their community. Impact Voices creates a space where AAC users of different abilities and experience come together to talk, laugh, encourage each other, and enjoy the company of others like ourselves. For more information on Impact Voices and to get involved, visit our website, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Vicki Haddix and Janine Pekka. Super excited to have you guys on today. We're going to be talking all about pre-service SLPs, graduate programs. Um, Vicki, we met at ATIA, and you did an amazing presentation there. Um, so super excited to talk about all those things. But first, let's just introduce yourselves and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Vicki Haddix. I'm an SLP and also clinical associate professor at the University of Memphis. Um, I have been here since 2015, um, and this summer session will be the 10th time that I've taught AAC at the graduate level. Um, before that, I worked in Boston Public Schools as their AAC specialist and then kind of transitioned into this clinical supervisor role. Amazing. Janine. Yes, uh, my name is Janine Pekka, and I'm a recent uh, spring graduate of the University of Memphis. <laughs> Yay, 
congratulations, Janine. It feels so good when you're finally finished. <laughs> I know. I don't, I don't have homework every, every day anymore. It's, it's a nice transition. Um, so I'm actually autistic myself. I was diagnosed uh, by two independent sources when I was an undergrad, and I can talk more about that later. And I'm very interested in medically uh, complex uh, patients, especially pediatrics, um, all things autism, AAC, um, just figuring out ways to help people communicate that, that do have that level of complexity. Well, that's what this podcast is all about. So we're really excited that you have that passion and that you can share your unique perspective with us. Um, I know Vicki, you know, part of the reason that we connected was because I attended your session at ATIA, um, which I feel like prior to that session, we had like a really rich conversation at AT chat. Um, so yeah, just share a little bit about, you know, your, your, your course that you presented at ATIA. I feel like it was really, really awesome. I was really interested because it was all about mentorship and how do we teach pre-service SLPs about AAC? Cause we know that many people's experiences was I had like either one day of AAC or maybe I had a class, but I never got to actually see an AAC system. Um, so we know it's an area of our field that's really important. Um, and, you know, oftentimes not really, you know, uh, it's not really an area of strength when pre-service SLPs become SLPs. They're like, okay, I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing. Yes. Well, and sometimes <laughs> I'm not sure they know what they're doing. <laughs> Um, but so I don't necessarily think AAC is the only area that they might feel that way, but, um, it's definitely one of the ones we hear more about. Um, so the class here is a three credit class, but it is an elective. Mm -hmm. So not everybody takes it. Um, I'd say about a half to two thirds of the student body ends up taking it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's offered twice a year so that I can keep the, um, the, class down in terms of attendance um because you, you get a more hands-on experience with fewer people in mm -hmm. the classroom um so i recognize that the way that i do things here is um absolutely a privilege in some ways <laughs> also because i'm the clinical professor i get to i see probably 80 percent of the students that i have in class i've also had in clinic awesome so i am um, so the way that I teach it is, is definitely influenced by those two things. Mm -hmm. Um, and also that it's an elective, so I get to play a little bit. <laughs> um, and I really do have some fun changing the course design and how I design things, um, and implementing a lot of stuff around GDL. Um, and I've been really influenced by thinking about the ungrading, not that we can go completely ungraded in graduate school, love that but um at least right now we're stuck giving grades <laughs> so um trying to figure out ways to make the course more accessible um and uh more interesting and that people want to take it um so that's been kind of my perspective pre-service slps is just i i want them to want to take it <laughs> um to see the need for taking aac uh, as part of your graduate school program um, I get a lot of emails from people who didn't take the class afterwards wanting me to summarize it in an email, which is, you know, it's a three credit class. It's hard to do that in an email. That feels impossible. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, you know, take the class while you have the opportunity. Um, having said that, a lot of people don't. And so I think the role of mentoring is absolutely one of the things that we need to think about going forward. Um, I think the greatest need for mentoring is often in the 
um, AAC evaluation realm. At least that's what I get a lot of questions from. And I, I think you guys do too. Totally. <laughs> and then um, it's like, it's like people will, will send us an email with like all of the stats, like six-year-old autism. And I'm like, and what device? And I'm like, uh, if we could just simplify the AAC assessment process to an email, like it would be so great. But yeah. unfortunately that's not enough information to figure out even what to start trialing oftentimes. Yeah. Um, so that's, and I also think that's hard to, because part of being a good AAC evaluator is um, knowing all the systems that are out there and how to match them to the kids. So even if you could be really good at and have a great relationship with this kid that you're evaluating, if you don't know the systems, it's going to be difficult to, to do that. So I, and I, and because the systems are ever changing, it's kind of a continuously moving goal. So I, I don't mean to imply this is an easy task. Um, and I think it's hard to teach in grad school because of that. It's hard to get a whole semester, but even in a three credit semester class, we cannot spend that much time just diving into all the different um, features of the device. I can kind of, kind of go into them a little bit. Um, and they definitely got hands-on time throughout the semester with it, but it's hard to know the devices to the level that I think you need to for good evaluations in a graduate school class. So I don't know that even with the perfect pre-service prep in AAC, I think we're still going to be at the stage where we need mentors um, going forward. Um, so that's the, and that's kind of what I've been playing around with, <laughs> um, is how do we do this mentorship thing once people graduate? Um, and I've tried a couple of different ways and I don't know that I've hit the, like, this is exactly the way to do it, but, um, at least we've tried a few things, um, as I've done the mentoring online, um, people sign up for about 10 hours. So it's one ASHA CEU. Um, and we do online mentoring, which has been great, but that's capacity wise is a bit of a challenge because, <laughs> um, you know, I have this other job. <laughs> so, um, and then I'm toying with the idea of doing just a specific two credit AAC class for um, SLPs in schools um, that would be online and probably at least, at least half asynchronous for the fall, but um, yeah, I think there's there and the, the stuff that has been most successful are the people that I see through either the grant that I have to build AAC capacity throughout Western Tennessee or, um, my coworkers who, you know, I see on a pretty regular basis. Um, we've done pretty similar to graduate education and the idea of, um, doing some initial learning, some initial like, here, go listen to this podcast or go watch this webinar. Um, this is exactly what you're having questions about. They talk this through. <laughs> um, or this is um, all of those wonderful posts that Lauren Enders had about setting goals on practical AAC, like writing goals for like here. Are, so a lot of being a mentor is knowing where the good resources are and pointing people in that direction. Um, and then like, let's talk about them afterwards. Um, let's put this into practice with the client you have in front of you. So I've been trying to do a lot of that. Well, and I also think that part of the problem, when, whenever you have a situation where there's a lot to teach, there's not a lot of teachers and there's not a lot of time across the board, like how can we 
figure out ways to not reinvent the wheel and Mm -hmm. to use asynchronous learning as a way to prep students and, you know, SLPs for the kinds of information that needs to build a strong foundation. And then it's like the time we spend together, like actually in real time is time where I can answer your questions and I can help do things that I can't do asynchronously and like the specific things. Um, I also think about this when I'm working because I'm in private practice. So I'm trying to prep families in that way when I'm working with them, because I don't have a lot of time. I have a long wait list of people waiting to see me. And I'm like thinking, how can I create asynchronous learning so that by the time you get to me, you already know what core words are. You know, the importance of modeling. Of course, I'll reiterate those things, Um, you know, but how can we really think about asynchronous learning now that we have technology that's so easily accessible and now after the pandemic, we have most people who feel more comfortable, at least with technology. Um, so it sounds like kind of you're thinking through that lens a little bit too. Yeah. Trying to figure out how to really curate the resources for people. I think it's a big thing um, because there really has been an explosion of resources in the last um, few years, especially since the pandemic, um, where there's so much on YouTube and some of it is, is, better than others. True. Um, and, um, and I think a lot of times people will, if there's only, you know, 10 minutes out of an hour long presentation, that's really relevant to them at that moment, they're not necessarily going to stick with it. But if I can give them like, you know, this is exactly like <laughs> this presentation on AC in the cloud is exactly this thing, <laughs> like go watch it. Um, that I think people are way more invested in. So it, I would, I don't know how to do this and I don't have the web skills <laughs> at the moment to do it, but I would love to have that kind of um, curation out there so that it's not just them. They don't like people don't have to come to me to get that. They can just, you know, type into this website of this is specifically, how do I get somebody interested in AAC? <laughs> like, how do I get teacher buy-in? Like just be able to type that into the search engine and it comes up with some recommended um, Web, websites, podcasts, and um, and webinars to to watch, listen, and read um, of like here these are these are what can point you in the right direction. And then when you still have questions, because you probably will, <laughs> then let's have a fifteen minute discussion, which is way more productive than if I have to go through this hour long <laughs> webinar <laughs> of information. And then yeah, so that's the sort of thing that I that I would love to figure out how to make that happen. Yeah. Well, one thing is, at least for our podcast, if you go to our website, talkingwithtech.org, you actually can search our episodes for the keywords like buy-in, motor planning, parents, like if you want AAC user episodes. Um, So that's definitely a resource for all of our listeners out there who maybe don't know about that. I use that all the time for my own podcast. I'm like, hmm, I want to share something about literacy. Like, let me go see what I can share. Um, But it sounds like maybe, and we also, you know, we have a lot of clinical supervisors and professors who are listening to this podcast, who are also actually using the podcast and curating these resources. And it sounds like, you know, that's a huge part of the kind of curriculum development, right? Is like figuring out how to streamline that process. And what I love about what you're saying is, you know, 
we don't, oftentimes we're just sending so much information and like an hour long webinar, people have this idea in their head, like, no, like that is so much of a time commitment that I'm going to keep procrastinating it out and out and out until then I eventually never do it. Um, or I've taken six months to do it. And so it's like, I love the idea of time stamping like this section of this podcast or this section of this webinar, um, because it just feels more manageable when we have, you know, so much to learn, so many resources out there. Um, how can we start curating the kind of like golden nuggets of information uh, for people? Yeah, when I started in teaching the AAC course in 2016, there were like five websites that had webinars and podcasts that were useful. Um, and now it's just, it's crazy. It, it's crazy. There's so many, so many different resources out there that it's, it's that curation part is I think a huge part of mentoring. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And like, it's, I do a lot of mentoring in the work that I do because I have a team of clinicians and they're all trying to learn about AAC. And it's especially, it's especially relevant in the assessment process. Like you said, I feel like I do a lot more mentorship with the assessments um, because there's just so much to know and, you know, all of the different systems and that whole process is, is, you know, it's challenging. And there's also not a lot of information out there. Like if we're thinking about resources, um, you know, there's just not a lot on the AAC assessment process. There's tons of stuff on therapy and implementation and, you know, all those things, which is great. Um, and I feel like people know more about that because there is more information out there, but you know, there's not as many resources with the assessment process. Yes. And I also see people getting stuck when they have a kid who is um, a non-symbolic communicator and um, who is maybe sort of kind of intentional, but it's, it's still emerging. And they're looking at therapy resources for kids who are like context dependent. And I was like, well, let's back up a second here. <laughs> like, let, let's see the bigger picture here. Let's talk about how to develop that sort of, how to get intentional communication more firmly established to then get to symbolic. Like mm -hmm. we're not, we're not at that. Some of those therapy recommendations for, for more context dependent communicators are not so applicable. <laughs> that kid who doesn't understand that symbol yet, let's, let's figure out how to teach that part. So that's where I also see people getting confused. Yeah. And we just like assume when we put like a device in front of a student that they should start using it with accuracy. And so it's like, well, there's so many kind of foundational skills to look for and assess for to determine like, oh, this makes sense. I just did a consult with a, a two-year-old. I like, I'm so impressed. This two-year-old was like, Isolate an index point and like accessing like the smallest icon size. I was just like, this is unheard of. Um, typically, I mean, he's a baby. Like, yep. so anyway, it was just like, you know, thinking about all of those foundations. And a lot of what I was talking with his mom was those foundational communication skills, understanding symbolic representation and just intention and initiation of communication, whatever that looks like. It's like, those are all skills, you know, that we can teach and need to kind of assess for in the assessment process. Um, Cause otherwise, you know, yes, like we're using therapy resources and activities and, um, you know, looking at it, the way that a student is using a system and thinking like, oh, this isn't working. It's like, well, we have to think about why, you know, and like take all of those things into consideration. Um, so, you know, when you are implementing and say you're, you're listening, you're like, well, I don't really do AAC assessments. Well, we still need to understand how to assess for these things when we're treating students who use AAC. Um, it's like, we can't have one without the other. So it's like, how can we teach people about both of those things? 
right? And if they just got a device, I'm not saying that it's not the appropriate thing, but how you use a device with a kid who is still emerging versus a kid, how you use the device with somebody who's context dependent is different. <laughs> um, and it it's helpful to know that. <laughs> totally. Um, and to look at resources that point you in the direction of, of ter- therapy strategies that are useful for, for those guys. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, what's one thing that you've found over the years, Vicki, that you found the biggest impact as far as like, wow, like this thing really helped. I mean, we talked about the resources and curating that. Is there anything else that kind of sticks out in your mind as something that like, I learned this throughout the years as something that's really helpful for students and pre-service SLPs um, or, you know, CFYs um, who are learning about AAC. And when I get those emails of, from people who like want me to summarize the class in an email thing, um, I send them to three things. Um, the practical AAC website with some ideas of how to search it because yes. <laughs> it can be overwhelming. <laughs> the AAC in the cloud um, webinars and then you're talking with tech podcast. Um, and I do those three things because that's a like reading, a watching and a listening thing. So I, I UDL is a wonderful thing. Um, so I uh, don't personally do a whole lot of podcasts. I, I just, my brain doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I can sometimes, but it's just, it's not, it's almost never my first thing. Webinars also rarely my first thing, although I I've gotten more into them since the pandemic, <laughs> but reading has always been like, give me a good blog post. That's absolutely where I'm, where I'm learning from, but other people have different learning styles. And so I try and make sure when I email people that they get those three different options. So whichever one works for them, go for it. Well, so Vicky, it's, hard to, it's hard to give you just one. I, those are awesome resources. We will forgive you that I'm hearing you're not a podcast fan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I try. I'm kidding. I really do. <laughs> you're forgiven. Um, no, but I, what I love about what you're saying is you're really thinking about how people learn in different ways. And I feel like that kind of UDL universal design for learning has to be a part of, you know, the things that we're doing for our students that we're teaching in graduate school, for our students that we're working with, you know, who are AAC users, um, for the professionals that we're teaching, if we have capacity to teach other professionals about this. Um, so I love that you're talking about that. I want to pull you and Janine, um, cause I know Vicki, we talked about UDL. Um, you were able to work with Janine, um, talk a little bit about first, let's talk about neurodiversity. Janine, can you kind of define that for people who are like, what does that mean? What is Rachel talking about? I can attempt to. Um, so the definition actually does surprisingly change depending on who you ask to an extent. So neurodiversity is essentially is what it sounds like. It's neuro diversity. So different types of brains, diverse types of brains is the idea behind it. Um, typically it refers to autism. Um, so like having the neurotypical brain as it's called, which is the non-autistic brain type, and then having the autistic brain type as a neurodivergent brain type. Uh, typically this is called neurotypical and neurodiverse. I personally prefer my own terms, uh, which is neuromajority and neurominority because it takes away that typical stigma out of that. Love that. Um, 
Uh, and I, when I've done presentations on it, those are the terms that I feel most comfortable using, but it's going to depend on person to person. Sometimes, depending on who you ask, neurodiversity also includes the ADHD style brain and sometimes some other uh, styles of brains with the different uh, interpretations. That's the that's the most basic definition I could come up with, Vicky. if you want to add anything. Please. I thought that was beautiful. That was beautiful, Janine. I love that. So tell me a little bit about your experience as being autistic in a graduate school program. Um, I'd love to hear just like your experience. And also, you know, I'd love kind of Vicki for you to share the things that you're thinking about uh, maybe a little bit differently to make sure that you are inclusive of neurodiversity with the teaching that you're doing. So Janine, first, just share a little bit about your experience. Sure. So I'll actually start off just by kind of sharing my autism journey itself, because yeah. everybody who's on the spectrum is very individual, hence why it's called the spectrum. <laughs> so what I'm going to say today might not apply to half of the people listening, and they might all be screaming at their computer like, no, it's the opposite. And that's that's totally fine. Um, so anything that I say, you know, is subject to my individual experience, obviously. So I my presentation of autism very much fills that um, female presentation profile very well. I mask very well. I learned how to mask at a very young age. All the signs were there, but I did not get diagnosed um, until I actually got into undergrad. And I saw uh, two different medical professionals to uh, verify the diagnosis essentially. And that's when I started getting academic accommodations specifically for autism, which I didn't have growing up in grade school, which would have been really nice <laughs> looking back. Um, so with that, you know, I am someone who was newer to the diagnosis in the community by the time that I hit graduate school, still like seven years in at that point, but still relatively new. You know, I didn't age with this diagnosis. I was still very much figuring it out. It's really interesting being an autistic SLP student because you spend a lot of your time learning about how to work with autistic clients. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's an interesting, like, it's almost like you're within the culture trying to help the culture. Like you are a source person being taught primarily by people outside of the source in quotation marks culture um, about what to do with people like you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that is interesting in and of itself for many reasons. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to dive into that a little bit. Like how did that feel? And were there moments that you were like a uh, hard no or a complete disagree? <laughs> well, um, so there were some hard no's and some hard yeses. Um, the biggest hard no was I did not take the autism class that is offered um, at my university. I, I did not, um, as, as someone who is a very big believer in the neurodiverse movement and neuroaffirming care, hearing about the autism class that we had here and where it is, where it was at least when it was offered for me was not where I'd want it to be in terms of the movement. And mm -hmm. my understanding is steps are being taken to push it more into a neuroaffirming, neurodiverse uh, place, but it wasn't there at the time. So I absolutely walked on that. And thankfully I have wonderful people in my life like Vicki Haddix um, and other clinical and academic faculty here at the University of Memphis that I knew I would get that training from. Mm -hmm. um, but there were definitely a lot of hard guesses. So for example, you know, working with Vicki and AC, you know, she teaches patients as a clinician, you know, because these individuals, they might need some more time to 
to figure out their language and what they want to say, whether it is on the AAC device or it is going to be through verbal communication. And that was just nice to be explicitly told because as someone who masks very well, I'm used to the rapid style conversation with other people in the neuromajority. Mm -hmm. So I need to be explicitly told as an autistic person, you need to calm down, <laughs> be patient, take a breath and, and wait for them. Mm -hmm. um, which was really good to hear because that's something that sometimes I need and I don't necessarily even realize I need to potentially self-advocate for that because I'm just so used to being in that masking zone of, presenting myself as if I'm at a job interview, you know, 24, seven, 365 when I'm on the clock. Um, yeah. There are some really great hard guesses too, even in class, like in my uh, school age language class, the professor, um, Catherine Mendez, she was talking about some, I feel lesser known things about the autism experience, which was really great. She talked about how sometimes categories that you might put forth might not match what this individual understands and how they conceptualize the world, their schemas. Mm -hmm. One of the, the things that she mentioned was autism and emotion. There are plenty of autism, uh, autistic individuals who will use the terms happy, sad, grouchy, glad, and that's great. But then there are some people with autism that don't conceptualize emotions that way, and I'm one of them. I feel a little or a lot of a sad or like a good or a bad type thing. So my day might be big, bad, or it might be small, good. And that's how I understand emotions. So just having someone who had done so much resource, research um, from resources that were definitely autistic voices uh, to, to get nuanced elements of the, the neurodiverse culture, if you will, into their class was really moving for me as a student. I felt super supported uh, in that environment. I love that. And I'm sure as you were going through this experience, there were so many moments of feeling like validated, first of all, for like your experience and feeling like, wow, someone is like sharing something that really resonates with me. Um, and also it just, it feels like, um, so much self-discovery probably has happened along the journey, um, you know, both with getting the diagnosis, which is just inevitable, right? You have this new kind of um, identity to start kind of thinking about and discovering. Uh, okay. And and then the experience that you have actually learning how to, you know, support autistic students, um, you know, in the work that you have chosen, you know, a career path in, um, it just feels so interesting. It's love listening to, to all of these experiences that you've had. And it sounds like it was really powerful for you. Oh yeah, for sure. No, when I, uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny. So how we realized I was autistic, we always knew that something was up. We didn't know what it was. Um, because, you know, again, I always acted as you would expect a child, however old I was to act, but my preference was always to stay inside for recess, not go outside and play, you know, not, play with all the like really intense noisy toys and stuff just kind of play by myself I really wanted to parallel play as a child those kinds of things so how I actually figured out that I was autistic my my mom came up to my room one day when I was uh, uh studying for a test in undergrad and she was like there was this news story on and they were talking about autism and some of those things they sound a lot like you you should look it up maybe some of the tricks and tips that they might have for autistic people might help you and i was like okay mom i'll look that up and i'm reading the profile and i'm reading the dsm i'm like oh okay <laughs> well feel free to call me out like that internet <laughs> thanks mom 
And then I told my mom, no, I actually, I don't think that it'll just help me to look at these resources. I think I'm autistic. Yeah. She was like, no, you can't be, you don't, you don't act quote unquote autistic. She had only seen the, the like autism presented as, you know, someone who does not sit still at a table, you know, does a lot of hand flapping, chair rocking, all of those stereotypical stims and super trains, you know, that very, very stereotypical presentation. She hadn't had the exposure, unfortunately, at that time. And I, you know, started doing research and I was like, no, autism doesn't look like that necessarily. It's true. <laughs> they had to go through a period of acceptance while I was like, yes, finally, <laughs> I understand. It all makes sense. I have a word for it. I can explain it to people. I can start this journey of self-advocacy. This is the best. <laughs> 